This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The world's changing. And what are things we can do to, to transform our business and engage our fans globally in different ways? People are using their name and likeness to create more opportunities, more stakes in companies. In order to turn the organization around, we had to turn it around not only just on the baseball operations side, but on the business operations side. Football and any other sport is very difficult, but I like to broaden my horizons and be able to expand sports. You need to be consumed live. And that's a big competitive advantage for intellectual property holders of sports content in the media landscape. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr, and this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Well, it is that time, finally, literally a year late, and it's coming none too soon for our guest, the Olympics. Uh, Jake Riley is with us. He is a marathon runner for Team USA. He joins us from Boulder, Colorado, as the bags are getting packed to head to Tokyo. Uh, Amazing accomplishment just to be at this point, Jake. First of all, thanks for joining us. How are you feeling? Like, what, what's what's your state of mind, your state of body? I I believe you're sort of beginning the taper at this point. So, what? what how, you got to be a little jittery. Yep, I'm starting to get those little kind of those little adrenaline clicks. Every once in a while, you kind of get like a little flushed. I know it's going to get a lot worse. Up until this point, you know, we've kind of been in like the the real depths of training, so most of it is just thinking about how tired I am and then focusing on you know, recovery and sleep and all this other kind of stuff. But, you know, we're starting to run out of the things that I can control and we're starting to run into the places where, you know, what are the conditions going to be like? What are, you know, what is our flights going to be like? COVID testing, all this other kind of stuff. So now because the, the training is sort of backing off, yeah, the, the nerves are starting to come. And I think, you know, that's a good thing, right? You need to know that you're primed. Uh, but I think the next couple of weeks here are going to be a little bit nerve-wracking, but it's the Olympics too, so it's uh, the best kind of nerve. Well, bless you, Jake, because I know me. I would be, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm going. It's like, oh, my goodness, where are my shoes? Which brings me to the point about your shoes. Uh, that is something that uh, is rather special for you. Can you tell me about uh, your footwear and, and what you use? Yeah, so I will be racing in uh, – Sapporo, Tokyo, basically, um, in the Cloud Boom Echo. So um, anyone who's, who follows the running world knows there's been a, a pretty big explosion in running shoe technology. So um, really high stack heights, so shoes that are pretty tall with um, a whole generation of new, really responsive, springy foams, uh, carbon-plated shoes to kind of add even more sort of energy return and, and uh, you know movement from the heel forefoot transition. So... Um, yeah, I, I'm sponsored by On Running, the Swiss brand. Um, they just came out with their latest marathon flat uh, designed to kind of compete with the best flats in the world. Um, yeah, it, it's really revolutionized running. Um, records are going down all over the place. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited. This will be my first marathon in the shoe. So I, I've run a half and kind of an older prototype, and I've done a couple of shorter races. So this will be my first time trying it out at the full distance. And, um, yeah, we've been working on prototypes for – over a year now since I've been with the company, and you know they've been working on it longer before that. So to see it finally released, I know they were scrambling on it a little bit. To see it finally released is really exciting. Hey, Jake, it's Mike Lynch up in Boston. Uh, congratulations uh, on making the team. It must be just the thrill of a lifetime. So uh, you've signed on with On Apparel, um, and unlike in the Olympics, you have to wear an Olympic uniform, and unlike tennis players, golfers, NASCAR drivers who are plastered with all their, all their sponsors, is the shoe the only visible sponsor and branding that we'll be able to see while you're competing in the Olympic marathon? 
the so because Nike is the official sponsor of USATF, um, mm-hmm. everything you wear has to be Nike except for shoes, sunglasses, and watches. I believe those are the three exceptions. I have a whole sheet that lists all the stuff we're allowed to do, but that's, that's basically it. So um, for, for most athletes, that means shoes, because most of us are sponsored by um, some sort of uh, you know, apparel company. But, yes, the rest of the uniform has to be Nike-branded. So, Jake, you know, I'm fascinated by kind of the, the business of, of running and, and the business of, of individual athletes. I, I think we all are. Help us understand that. I mean, you know, you're an incredibly bright guy, as, as many runners are. I say that as a runner. Um, and you went to Stanford. You know, you studied uh, biomechanical engineering, I believe, and then you got a master's in mechanical engineering. So pretty smart fella. Uh, how do you go about kind of designing the Jake Riley Inc., as it were? Oh, uh, I'm a little bit new to that process, and I don't think I'm the best. At, at that, and I think especially, I don't know, I'm sorry, going to sound like a broken record compared to other people you've had on, but, like, social media has changed everything. Yeah. Um, you know, I think now you certainly need to have some sort of, you know, social media presence, and that's something I've been trying to work on is, like, you know, doing more posts and making sure that you're kind of demonstrating to either your, your sponsor company, so on in my case, or potential sponsors that, like, Yes, when I post something, people respond to it, and you're trying to be sort of engaging but also real. Um, you know, I think for me, uh, I, I've never been great at um, doing much besides sort of running content. So I just try to make you know my social media feed uh, pretty honest. We try to give people like, a look inside what I'm doing for training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I have like a relatively compelling narrative when we try to share share that. Um, I dealt with injury for a long time, and I think a lot of people were surprised about me making the team, um, especially coming off of a three year period where I really wasn't doing a whole lot. Um, so we try to you know share that, and I think especially with distance running as opposed to other sports because it's um, you know you can participate in this. Like you said, you're a runner. There's lots of runners out there. Like I would imagine a lot of your runners have at least jumped in like a local 5K or something like that, even if it's just to walk, jog it. So I think there's a level of connection a lot of, you know, the people watching the Olympics will have to my sport that they might not have to like soccer or tennis or badminton or whatever it is. Um, And so, you know, kind of sharing what I do and and giving people a look at what it's like to do it at a high level, I think is, is important. And I see kind of the people that are best at doing this sort of branding um, you know, have a nice combination of that and then also being sort of, you know, funny and genuine and, um, and engaging. It's the, the big challenge for me is doing it consistently. I, yeah. Especially if I start to get stressed or tired, like, that's one of the first things to go, and I just I don't want to get on social media and post. I'm sort of that, that early millennial generation where I never fully committed to, to Facebook and everything, so I have to work a little bit harder than I think other people where, like, that's just what they've been doing since they were in elementary school. Yeah, interesting. I have to ask the elephant in the room. You are going to Tokyo, uh, and in Japan there is a problem with COVID-19, and it has put a question mark on on some of the games. Can I ask your thoughts about that? And and obviously you're very excited at going to Tokyo, but your thoughts about uh, going into this this COVID era? Yeah, and I certainly – it's, on the one hand, I've been thinking about going to the Olympics since I was maybe 
six years old, I've always tried to remember what my, my earliest Olympic memory is, and it's probably from somewhere around there. Um, so <laughs> the thought of the games, like, not going off and me missing this sort of, you know, potentially one opportunity to ever go to the games, like, I really, really don't want that to happen. But at the other time, I completely understand, you know, they have low vaccination rates. We have the Delta variant growing up. I completely understand the Japanese people sort of uh, reluctance to have a whole bunch of foreigners running around their country, potentially bringing in, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, outside diseases and, and sort of interacting with everybody. Now, I will say that, like, the level of restriction and protocol that they're taking in Tokyo to, to make sure that that doesn't happen is pretty um, – extreme like the, the the level of restriction on, on sort of my movements and what i'm allowed to do and just how much i'm going to be tested um is is pretty intense so i actually am not super concerned um with me giving covid to anyone or getting covid from anyone or, or them being you know that, that's sort of out right there i think um I, I also do feel a little bit like the olympics has kind of become sort of the poster child for this sort of thing whereas like they've been putting on sporting events. I think I just saw that they had like a, a soccer match with in-person spectators like last week in Tokyo in spite of the lockdown. We're not going to have spectators at the Olympics. So like we're reaching a, a, a level of restriction that they are already not applying to some of their own events. Now, that's fine. This is a global thing. Like they need to manage public perception. And so long as I get to race, I'm fine with, you know, it's just me out there doing a time trial. That's what it takes. But, um, you know, I, I'm not super concerned with uh, the athletes and the people interacting with the athletes taking COVID. Now, as a symbol, that's like a, a, a slightly different issue. And I think too many countries for too long have kind of taken COVID not seriously enough. And uh, the appearance of not taking it seriously, I do think does, uh, you know, some damage as well. So, you know, as sort of a, a symbol of things being extreme in that measure is, is maybe good, uh, especially with, you know, other countries seeing, seeing surges going on as well. You know, it does seem like maybe a little bit in, in poor taste to put on a massive global event when, you know, Africa and Asia are kind of exploding with the Delta variant. Um, but I don't see this being sort of like a, a spark that lights a massive fire of another COVID outbreak. Jake, the marathon is not going to be run in Tokyo. It's going to be run in Sapporo, 500 miles away, uh, because of the. Uh, it's a little, going to be a little bit cooler. Will you be housed there the entire time and sort of miss out on the experience of the Olympic Village? Tell, give, tell me the logistics of what's mapped out for you guys. So we stage in Tokyo. Um, there's like a window where we have to be in Tokyo, and that's where they do a lot of our processing, especially sort of our entry immigration documentation, a lot of the initial COVID stuff. Um, so the plan as we got it in processing was that we would be in the Olympic Village for like two days, three days, um, and then we would fly up to uh, Sapporo on August 1st uh, for you know, men race on August 8th, August 7th here in the States, and then women race the day before. Um, and so we would be in, in Sapporo for a week, and we have like a, a hotel right next to the start of the race course that's just for, for athletes. Um, now, the, the restrictions on, on what we can do and sort of what the COVID protocols are, are have been shifting a little bit, and they're pretty reluctant in Sapporo to give us access to certain training facilities. Like normally when you would go to a big race like this, you would you know, be able to jog the course or you know, have some sort of park where you could go. And they really don't even want to give us that. Um, there's like 
they were like, well, can we have some treadmills? And they seemed to be kind of some bargaining around that. So we may be staying in Tokyo for a little bit longer than we originally intended, um, just because there are facilities that have been roped off specifically for athletes, and the you know the COVID protocols are a little bit stronger there than they are in Sapporo. So you know it's a little bit crazy that things are still in flux this close to when we're traveling, but you know we we may be sort of calling an audible here and staying a couple extra days in Tokyo. So I, I will get a little bit of an Olympic Village. Uh, experience, which I, I really did want. I thought we were going to have to go straight to Sapporo, and I wasn't going to see any of it. Um, but I also, like, if I only see a couple days of the Olympic Village, that's fine with me. Um, one of the annoying things about being, like, I think I'm not second-to-last event or maybe, like, the last event. I We're, like, one of the last people to yeah. go, which means even if I were in the Olympic Village, I couldn't really take advantage of any of sort of the exciting things. Like, even if I could go out into Tokyo, I wouldn't be able to go out and sort of walk around the city and, and do all the fun stuff there because I have to stay inside and stay off my feet and, you know, hydrate and do everything rigorously. Like, I can't be going out and, and partying like everyone. And so, like, by the time you're getting to the end of the games, like, half the athletes have already done their stuff and they're just having a big old party. Like, from, from talking to other Olympians who have been to past games, once the novelty of the Olympic Village wears off, it kind of gets like a little bit annoying because the bunch of young, dumb kids who, once they're done with their competition, just want to go out and, and throw a rager. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel the need to be next to that all of the time. You know, my, my main regrets with not being in Tokyo is, you know, not being around that energy with sort of the the crowds and sort of all the all the focus there. But you know, with COVID, it wasn't going to happen anyway. So. Um, Getting 10 degrees cooler on my marathon, I think, is a, um, a bigger advantage than any potential you know, miss out on an extra five days in the Olympic Village or whatever it was going to be. Yeah, totally. Um, Jake, I want to go back to something you, you talked about toward the top of the conversation, which is this this boom in technology and innovation as it relates to shoes. And, and one of the fascinating things that, that sort of stitching some things together that you talked about is this is a sport that, you know, millions, tens of millions of people, I think, you know, across the world participate in. And so you are in a position, you know, as an elite runner to influence the sorts of technologies, the brands of shoes, et cetera, that that we all use as, you know, everyday folks running around our neighborhood or on, on the trails near our house. It, talk to me about that evolution and, and how you get involved in it as an athlete, especially with on and, and with the cloud boom echo, because I mean, you were, they were discussing with you, you know, some of the mechanics of the shoe, which, which has got to be an interesting process. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, running is, if we're not the easiest sport to do, I don't know what is right. right? Like people have always been running. So like there just really hasn't been, a ton of innovation, especially in, in my race, right? And the track, you've kind of improved the surfaces and spikes have gotten lighter and all that kind of thing. But for marathoning, it's pretty much you put, or up until maybe five, ten years ago, like it was you put as lightweight a piece of cloth on the bottom of your feet as you can, and you go out and run, and that's pretty much all you do. Um, yeah, so I, I can't remember exactly when they came out with the the first iteration of the, the Nike 4%, which is kind of the first shoe to do this sort of thing. I mean... To, to give listeners who aren't super familiar with it, um, it's basically a, a shoe with a very high stack height. So I think it's 40 millimeters is the restriction they have on it now. Um, so it, it's very thick shoe, but it is all made of this very super light foam. So essentially what you're doing is you're increasing your leg length without uh, 
decreasing your leg length, which increases your stride length, but you're doing it without really adding on any extra weight. Um, so you essentially get free stride length. And then the, the foam is also very kind of springy responsive, so it returns a higher percentage of the energy that you're putting in when you step down. It's kind of springing upwards and, and kind of giving you a little bit of a drive forward. Um, and that has been combined with um, this super light carbon fiber plate that runs along the length of the shoe, um, which improves kind of energy transfer from your heel to your forefoot and kind of makes this little spring. Um, so when you put them on, uh, I've described it before as like kind of running around on trampolines. It's a, it's a little bit disconcerting to put it on the first couple of times. Like you actually have to wear them a couple of times to, to kind of get into the new rhythm of running because they're so light and so springy. Um, and so those came out. Um, yeah, I remember really starting to hear about them in like the 2016 Olympics. I know that they come as, I think those were, they were prototypes at that point. Yeah. And since then, um, you know, we've had Eliab Kipchoge run, you know, the first sub two hour marathon, marathon times all over the place are going down. Records are being broken. Like you've got kids running for a while there, people were running them in track races until they became illegal in track races. Um, so there's been sort of a big controversy because the records seem to be going down so easily in athletes that you wouldn't have expected to be as fast as they are running times. And so you kind of have this old guard talking about how they're unfair or cheap or something like that. And I think especially when Nike was the only company out there with one of these shoes, other companies, so for someone like me who was sponsored by someone not Nike, I would not be allowed to wear a Nike. And so if they've got the carbon-plated shoe and I don't, you know, I'm at a disadvantage, and then all of a sudden you have this kind of competition disparity that people were thinking wasn't very good for the sport. You know, other companies kind of had to scramble when they realized just how much of a game changer this shoe was. Uh, but at this point, you know, I, I don't know if we've reached total parity, but we're pretty close. And, um, you know, most of the major companies out there have some version of the shoe. Um, they're all getting pretty close in terms of the, the bump. So the, the original shoe was called the Nike 4% because it's supposed to give you 4% improvement in, I believe it was running economy. Um, and most shoes are kind of hitting that mark right now. And so we're kind of getting back to the place where we were before, where, you know, the average runner out there who is not sponsored can kind of go through and they can put each one on their foot and they can see, well, this one feels good to me, this one feels bad, and feel pretty confident that they're not going to be at any sort of disadvantage. So, you know, if you're a Saucony person, you can wear Saucony. Right. If you're an on person, which everybody should be, you can be wearing on. <laughs> Whatever it it's is. very subtle, um, Jake. That was very, very subtle. <laughs> I just want to make sure that the sponsor, uh, you know, knows that I'm I'm looking out for their interests. Exactly. Uh, you know, I'll make my money. You're, see, um, you know, you said oh, I don't know that much about this business thing, but here you are effortlessly, effortlessly promoting. <laughs> I have to well, ask. You know, after after uh, after I'm done with the running, I hope to go in and actually design running shoes myself. So just to all the future employers out there, interesting. But as far as developing this on shoe, so I came on with on in I think we I signed in, in June of last year, a little bit after the trials, and you know they had a prototype ready by then. I think we've gone through maybe two to three iterations since then, and you know it's one thing to know what these elements are supposed to be. So you want like a high stack with low, like, you know, with a really light foam, and so you can go out and you can just find a bunch of foams and you find the lightest one and you can measure you know what's the springiness and a plate. Um, but then you kind of have to figure out what's the best way to combine these elements. Um, you also have to, you know, make sure that the upper is sort of snug and all those kind of things. So, you know, tailoring in the fit and the feel. And then also, you know, on, I think is a people who have seen on shoes, they have kind of a, a unique look to them. They have these, these things called cloud elements, which basically look like little, um, 
the first prototypes were like, I think, just rounds from a hose. But they basically have these little circles, and then they're kind of like little springy um, cylinders on the bottom of the shoe. And so, like, you know, you want to keep it consistent with the design of the other shoes and kind of combine those elements. And how do you do that uh, with keeping the, uh, the, you know, the, the major factors of the shoe together? Uh, and also, how do you kind of get around other companies' IP, yeah. all that kind of stuff? Um, so, you know, when we first got it, uh, I had a lot of, I had certain criticisms. I tend to like a, a pretty high, uh, what we call heel drop, so where the, the difference in height between the heel and the forefoot, I like to have that be pretty high in the heel. Um, other people don't like that. Uh, I wanted, you know, I think the heel forefoot transition is, should be pretty smooth. I didn't think it was an issue. I didn't think they were maximizing the stack height quite as much as they could have. And, you know, so I gave them that sort of feedback. They get it from other people. We needed to lock in, you know, what is, what is the upper doing? You know, when we first got it, there was a bunch of sort of kind of crease on you. And, you know, engineers, uh, they have a lot of very smart, very good people on it, working on it. But I think it's helpful to have someone like me who, who knows what it's like to not just kind of jog around in it. I'm going to be in this thing for two hours plus, And that, that gives you a, a different perspective on what the shoe needs to feel like. Um, and, you know, in a collaborative effort between what, you know, I'm feeling on my feet and what they're seeing in the lab, I think we've tailored it in. And um, especially this later iteration where they really added in an extra layer of the, the light foam, um, they, they increased that stack height. Um, they added more. What else did they do? Yeah. It, those, those are the two major differences. And it, yeah, it's been night and day since the first iterations out there, which is exactly what you want out of the design process. It must be interesting to Michael Barr for them to to work with someone like Jake, who is not just like, well, it feels like this, but is actually a you know has a master's in engineering, and so can actually like use the words that they use. I would think anyway. Well, yeah, I, that's what I was going to ask. Is listen, you obviously know it, Jason, because he is also a runner, knows this, but I don't understand. Because about this, that they're saying that you're cheating if you have a particular shoe. Because unless you have an Acme Jet sneaker on, I don't understand why that's cheating. If everybody has access to that same shoe, can can you explain that to a guy who's expert in sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. So that was the the problem was that that was how it was. Not everybody had access to it. So you know. When you are sponsored, I, you know, in my on contract, it says, like, I wear on apparel in any situation in which the public will see me in a, in a running capacity. So when I step up to the starting line, I wear on shoes, I wear on shorts, on singlet, all that kind of stuff. And for a long time there, Nike was the only one with one of these shoes. And if it's really giving you a 4% bump and everybody else is running in kind of the old school of flats, which is essentially just like a piece of rubber on the bottom of your feet, like they're getting 4% increase and you're not like, you know, for, for the average runner that might not make a big difference, but you know, when we're talking about you know, trying to shave seconds off of anything, like 4% is pretty significant. Um, I will say, I think there's also a little bit of a, a generational thing. Like it, this, my, my coach is Lee Troop. Um, he was a, a marathoner for Australia. Um, three time Olympian, his PR is 209. And now he's seeing a bunch of athletes that, like, they didn't have 5K PRs. This was good as his, but now they're crushing his PR into, like, his Australian records. Like, you know, he's moving farther and farther down the list, and it's like, well, they have access to the shoes. And I think an another piece of it is, you know, 
it's approximately 4%, but, you know, how pe- people want to know how they stack up, you know, sort of across generations and type of things. You know, it feels like to, to give people an analogy that maybe they'll pay attention to because this one shows up on ESPN, right? You always talk about, like, how good is LeBron James compared to Michael Jordan right. or, you know, going even farther back? Like, well, they played in different leagues. Well, they do so much more strength training right now and blah, blah, blah. And people are trying to figure out just how much you can compare them. These shoes have made those comparisons significantly more different, difficult. And I think a lot of people are arguing, like, we need to preserve the purity of the sport, I guess. You know, like, if they were doing it then, we should be doing the same thing now because that, that keeps the sport pure. I don't particularly buy into that argument. Like, you know, the first marathon, the guys ran in leather shoes and long pants, and I think the winner ended up stopping for wine, like, two times along the right. course. Like, <laughs> there has been innovation, right? Like, at the high jump in the 60s, people were jumping into a sand pit, and they were, weren't even doing the Fosberg flop yet. Like, innovation happens. It's going to keep happening. I think the most important thing is that, you know, when people step on the line against each other, I do think the most important thing is that they're competing on a relatively even field, that the, the differences that you see in performance are due to um, the athlete's preparation and their inherent talent and all that kind of stuff. And I think the shoe technology now is getting to the point where that's the case regardless of the brand that you have on your feet. But there, there, was, a, there was a four-year period where that wasn't the case, and, you know, this Technology started in the in the road shoes, the ones that don't have spikes on the bottom of them, um, but it's still kind of coming up in in racing spikes. The the shoes that athletes wear on the track, maybe just came out with a new one of those, and most of the other brands didn't have an answer for it. So at this year's Olympic trials, pretty much every athlete, regardless of their sponsor, was wearing one of their spikes because the brands were like, "Our our shoe can't compete. We need yeah. you guys to be making the Olympics." you wear whatever you think is going to be best. Interesting. That's not going to be the case in 2024. All of our brands are going to have, like, let's like to match Nikes, and we're going to be back to a place where it's, it's back on the focus, hopefully, is back on the athletes. Like you said, the average citizen, like, their eyes start to, to glaze over when we start to talk about this sort of esoteric <laughs> nonsense. It, it, I do think it is a little bit of a distraction. If you're watching the call both on the track or on the road, like, you're going to have to sit through another five-minute discussion of this as athletes are running around the track. And I do think as runners who kind of hash this out a lot, it's potentially interesting. But if you're flipping the channels and you hear somebody talking about shoes, like, I don't care about that. I want to know like why that guy just started sprinting. Um, I don't know that it's the best in terms of bringing new people to the sport because it is a little niche and a little inside baseball. Um, So I think it would be good for the sport if we could kind of move past this, which the more other shoes or other companies innovate and kind of, create that period again, the, the sooner we can get back to that place. So, Jake, uh, to quote uh, the late Herb Brooks, the Olympic coach in 1980, this is your time. This is the opportunity, the window of opportunity you've been looking forward to your whole life. How do you keep your sponsor engaged, and is there an opportunity or time to cultivate new sponsorships during this Olympic experience? Uh, well, keeping my sponsor engaged, uh, they've on has been really uh, understanding, I guess, with, with my time. So I've certainly had some, um, you know, done some promotional stuff. So I went out to the, uh, the Olympic track trials, even though I wasn't competing, and we did a couple promotional things. You know, they brought me out for sort of video shoots, but they made sure to put that all kind of a month or two out to kind of get the stuff that they need. 
um, you know, I can put things up on Instagram and sort of tag them and do that sort of stuff. And that's all relatively easy because it's just, you know, my coach taking pictures while I run. That sort of candid stuff, I think, is tends to be more appealing for people than something really polished. Um, so they've all, on has pretty much laid off for the most part. And then not to be, again, inside baseball, there's rule 40, which essentially says I can only make a certain number of posts um, referring to on. And when I refer to on, I cannot refer to them in the same post as I refer to the Olympics and I can only use certain wording. So they kind of don't really have an option, but to not ask me for stuff right now. Um, that is a whole other conversation for people to understand the, the business side. And I, I don't think it's the best one. Um, is that, is that an IOC rule? Uh, that is a, yes. Yeah. You know, okay. a lot brands pay a lot of money to be the exclusive sponsor and right. Right. they are very, very protective of those rights. Um, so in the USATF, I think it's, it's also their rule. I don't know who's making exactly what levels of each rule, but if you're an IOC sponsor, like you get exclusive rights and other athletes, ones who are not sponsored by the same sponsor that the Olympics are, have been fighting like tooth and nail to try and get some sort of exposure, you know, running, gymnastics, swimming. We come up every four years. The rest of the time, people don't care. We do not show up on ESPN. We do not... Like, we do not show up on the news unless it's for, like, a doping scandal or something like that. Like, this is essentially the only time we're going to have any sort of national imagery. Honestly, running is – marathoning might be in a better spot than a lot of these sports because, you know, I can show up to a major marathon with 40,000 people and, you know, hop in the same race. I get some exposure from that. You know, New York Marathon is on TV. That's not the case at, like, a swimming Grand Prix. Like, hammer throwers aren't getting on TV most of the time. This is like, this is their one chance to attract new sponsors. You know, you make a big splash at the games. Um, the first person that comes to mind, Raven Saunders, just made, uh, I believe it was the shot put. She has like this, I don't know, this real badass image. She wears like a Hulk mask. She um, just shouting in the camera and everything like that. Like, she could turn that sort of personality into like a new big sponsorship. Three years ago, like two years ago, when she was just competing for the U.S. championships, that wasn't going to be the case. Like, she's going to get new sponsors because of her personality and how big she goes here. And I would hope to do the same. Like, if I make a splash at this game, it's going to mean uh, bigger appearance fees at races. It's, you know, nutrition sponsors, sunglass sponsors, watch sponsors, all that kind of stuff. Like, you make it at the games, you can kind of coast off of that for a really, really long time. So, certainly that is in the back of my mind. Like there are huge financial incentives for, for someone in a sport like mine uh, to perform well at the games and, you know, to you know, get some sort of TV appearance to be compelling, whatever it is. Um, it, yeah. It, it's certainly something that it crosses your mind exactly how to maximize that opportunity. I'm not real good with, you know, that's I think um, both an advantage and a, a disadvantage. Like, I don't see it as a huge distraction. That's not a place where I put a lot of my energy, but I do think I suffer a little bit from that in terms of financial returns. Um, but, you know, my, my hope is that I perform well and those performances speak for themselves and that you know, attracts the people that want to work with me. And if you do, I'll go to bat for you. Just tell me how to do it.
Right. Well, uh, I think we all have high hopes for you both uh, on the course uh, in Tokyo, and and I'm looking forward to the day where we bring you back with your own shoe company because it sounds like uh, <laughs> that's where you're headed. With all due respect to your current sponsor, it, it seems like you have a a lot of aspirations uh, in in the business world and beyond. So uh, I know you've got a big task at hand and safe travels uh, in the meantime, and uh, obviously all rooting for you. To me, as a runner, uh, the marathon is it's the ultimate Olympic event in many ways. And I think where it sits in the Olympic calendar only emphasizes that because it's just, it's always such an amazing thing to watch and, and, and truly the sport at its, at its highest level and, and human competition at, at its highest level, because it is so, so pure and, and so beautiful to watch. And, and, grueling as as any of us who have run a uh, a marathon knows so uh jake riley best 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 of luck to you thank you so much for joining us hey thank you and just one last thing i'll say august 7 3 p.m pacific time is when uh my race is going to be on tv the women's race goes on the day before i believe at the same time so you guys should all tune in i know watching people run for two hours does not sound like the best thing to a lot of people um but i swear there'll be compelling narratives um it's going to be hot. It's going to be humid. It's going to be tactical. There's going to be resurges. It's going to be exciting. So everybody should tune in. And in general, tune into the Olympics. I know it's a COVID year and, and sort of it's, it's looking a little weird, but at the end of the day, it's the best athletes in the world competing against each other. And that's compelling and exciting. And you guys should all watch. All right. Well, best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Well, I'll definitely yeah, be watching, Jake. Don't worry. And like the Hammer players, yeah. unfortunately, they're not getting any Hammer time. Uh, Nothing. Oh, I see what you did there. See, see, oh, see. That was a dad joke cut, there. Cut. Uh, this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr, old man Barr, in his Chuck Taylors. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. <laughs> He's an imposter, Frank. He's an imposter. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at Lynchy. Good luck, Jake. Lynchy WCVB. And I'm Jason Kelly. Follow me at Jason Kelly News. I'm the guy who's usually tens of minutes, if not hours, behind uh, Jake on the course. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again throughout the week. We'll be keeping an eye on the Olympics and a special conversation later in this week about NIL. It is reshaping the world of college athletics. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio, around the world, and online, wherever you get your podcasts.